tonight, a surprising jobs report and how that is impacting our recession risk and your 401k. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Andy Schaefer, who's in for Steve Sprovac this week. And we have the A-team for you tonight. Andy, Amy, and yes, Andy Stout joins us every Monday. He's always chief investment officer, um, managing, you know, billions of dollars from right here in Cincinnati. So he keeps a close eye on this economic data. Andy, surprise late last week, right? We expected the jobs report to start showing signs of kind of the economy tightening, heading toward a recession. And we saw anything but that. Well, it was a blowout jobs report. What it showed was that businesses added a whopping 528,000 new jobs. And when I looked under the hood, we saw gains in every single major in industry. Education and health uh, service were leading the way, but we also saw some real strength in the leisure and hospitality sector. And uh, he here's the thing. If you look at the total number of jobs that are now in the economy, uh, we are back above where we were before the pandemic. So we just eclipsed the February 2020 high watermark. Hey, Andy, um, there's some unemployment rate uh, data that just uh, came across and saw that um, the unemployment rate ticked down to about three and a half percent and matched its lowest level since 1969. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when we think about the jobs report, there's two parts. There's one where the, the, the government surveys businesses. That's the number of jobs in the economy. And the other is where they survey households. And that's where we get the unemployment rate. And it did tick down, matching the lowest level since uh, 1969, 3.5%. And we look at why it did it for two reasons. One reason was good. One reason, not so good, right? The not so good one was that 63,000 people left the labor force, causing the labor force participation rate to drop from 62.2% to 62.1%. So that's the not so good reason as why the unemployment rate fell. But it also fell because 179,000 people found jobs compared to the prior month. So we had the total number of employed increase. So that was a good part of it. So when we look at that collectively, you know, what we see is, you know, we see businesses adding jobs. We see more people finding jobs. And from that perspective, it's actually pretty good. Andy, what the heck is wrong with these people? How do they miss it so badly? <laughs> and, and were you surprised? Were you surprised by these numbers? Well, the 528,000 new jobs, that was more than double right. what economists were expecting, which was 250,000. So yeah, if you're an economist, I mean, you you can miss off uh, by by a really good amount. And it's like being a weatherman. Really it's like much. being yeah. a meteorologist. Like, oh, I yeah. said it was going to rain, but it's sunny today. <laughs> I said that you know we were going to lose jobs, and we gained half a million. Yeah, well, it's, it's a tough job, uh, either one. Uh, but there's another part of the jobs report I want to talk about, uh, Amy and Andy, and yeah. that is the average hourly earnings. So it shows wages uh, from people uh, who are getting jobs and working. And what we see, or what we saw, at least in the month of July, is that the change from July to June, we saw wages increase by half a percent. And that's pretty quick. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I know it might be a good thing if you have a job, you get a raise. However... That means inflation, right? And economists were, again, wrong, uh, but they were looking for a 0.3% uh, monthly increase and an increase by 0.5%. So that's, uh, that's an issue when it comes to the Fed and what it means for possible Fed rate uh, hikes. So I'll, I'll just kind of sum up the, uh, the job report. 
The unemployment rate dropped to the lowest level, matching uh, the lowest level since 1969. Yep. Businesses had added many more jobs than what was expected, and wages were accelerating. What that means is that the Fed will stay aggressive in their rate hikes for two reasons. The first is that inflation is still it's too hot due to that wage number. And the second is the economy can handle the hikes because of the massive payroll number. Andy, there were also some other topic economic releases last week and show that the economy is growing. What did the ISM manufacturing and services sectors tell us? Yeah, the ISM, uh, which is the Institute of Supply Management, uh, this is a an organization that surveys uh, purchasing managers. And to give us an idea of what the manufacturing sectors of the economy looks like and also the service sector. So we can kind of separate the U.S. economy to manufacturing and services. And what we saw was that both of those surveys pointed to more economic growth. Uh, we saw a tick up in business activity. So that's very good from that perspective. Now, the other th big takeaway from these uh, surveys was that price pressures appear to be uh, easing some. So there's different parts of these surveys. And, you know, I just mentioned the business activity, but there's also prices. And there was a big drop in prices. Now, it still showed prices increasing, but at a significantly slower pace than what uh, was experienced in the prior month. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are joined as we are every Monday uh, by Andy Stout, our chief investment officer, to make sense of a lot of these economic numbers that are going out. I mean, Andy, we talk about a stellar jobs report. We've got manufacturing data coming in better than expected. Uh, so that kind of puts the Fed, sort of backs them further into a corner, as you mentioned, to be more aggressive. What do you think this all means to our 401ks? Well, it really just depends on quite a few things. I mean, our 401ks, you know, they're going to be dependent on not just what the Fed does, but also what the economy does, what corporate profits are doing, uh, what companies are earning, because earnings are really one of the biggest, if not the biggest driver when it comes to long-term stock performance. And when we, you know, look at the Fed, you know, they are going to raise rates again. Uh, they're go their next meeting is in September. And what the market is pricing in and what the market is expecting is most likely another 0.75 percentage point rate hike. We've already had two of those in the last two meetings. So it looks like we might have a third, at least based on uh, where the, the market's trading at right now. What that would do is that would push the Fed funds rate, which is the overnight rate that banks can lend to each other to a range of about 3% to 3.25%. And that will have an effect and slow down the economy. I know it works in a little bit of a lag, but there's going to be an immediate effect there too, because it also has an impact on mortgage rates and other borrowing aspects. For example, uh, when you go to a bank, you might all you might see after if you look up all those numbers they have listed uh, on their bulletin boards. You know their prime rate. The mm -hmm. prime rate, by definition, is the the interest rate that banks lend to their best customers, their most credit worthy customers. And mathematically, it's a formula. It's the Fed funds rate plus three percentage points. So when the Fed is raising rates, that's having an immediate impact on the cost of borrowing throughout the economy. And that will slow down the economy. You know, will we fall into a recession? Eventually, don't know exactly know when. Uh, I mean, the jobs data certainly suggests we're not in one right now. Uh, but when we think about your 401k, you know, there might be some volatility, there might be some uncertainty, there's no question about it. But you know, if you're investing for the next three months, if you probably 
might not be the best idea to be uh, having any sort of exposure to that if you need that cash. You want to make sure you have an ample cash reserve regardless. And really, this what should be invested should be more for your intermediate and long-term goals, not to pay your mortgage next month, right? Andy, over the weekend, the Senate approved the inflation reduction plan. Uh, will that actually reduce inflation? It's probably one of the bigger misnomers uh, <laughs> out there <laughs> as far as uh, naming conventions go. I mean, the Senate's looking to uh, spend $430 billion. Now, I understand the argument is that they're raising $300 billion more than that. Just And that's why they're saying it could reduce inflation and also have a price cap on uh, certain types of uh, drugs just through uh letting Medicare essentially negotiate their own drug prices. Uh, But yeah, will it have an impact on the economy and move things too much? You know, it's, it's not that big of a package to really move the needle too much in one direction or another. I mean, it's probably just more of a rounding error when we look at what it will be for GDP, just because that money is not hitting all at once too. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some other implications like how, Will the 430 billion, you know, where's the money from that coming? Well, already mentioned, talk, talked about Medicare uh, negotiating spending or negotiating drug prices on its own, uh, but they're also putting a minimum corporate uh, tax of 15%. So that could have some repercussions on earnings, could raise some uncertainty. It looks like it's going to go to the House, at least as I saw probably on Friday. The House is on recess right now, but they're going to come back for a day, then uh, go back. Uh, on their vacations. So, you know, when, when we look at that, the impact, probably not a tremendous impact on the economy itself. I don't think it will lower inflation. Now, we'll probably see inflation go down over the intermediate term just because we're coming from such high levels. But uh, I not for one second would attribute any of that to the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, Andy, on the inflation front, if anyone has filled up their gas tank recently, it's getting a little bit brighter out there. Oil prices below 90 bucks a barrel for the first time since February. We're moving in the right direction. Do you think that's going to loosen some things up? You know, a lot of it does depend on how the uh, Russia-Ukraine war evolves, clearly. But with that said, yeah, we've seen oil come down to the lowest level since February, late in, I think even late January after uh, this morning's drop from what we've seen in the price of oil. We'll see where it settles that for the day. Mm. However, you know, we haven't seen it completely flow through onto the gasoline side. So I mentioned we were at the lowest level since February or January. Uh, the national average gas price, Amy, it's at 407 right now. Uh, it was 350 in February. So yeah. we're still you know, up, we, but. Yeah, so but it's it's come down from where it was. I, I guess that's a good thing. But it, it does. I mean, anecdotally, it seems like, you know, gas stations are always quick to raise the price of gas when oil goes up, but pretty slow to bring it down. Uh, so we'll, we'll get there eventually if oil stays in this uh, area here. But I understand also, you know, gas uh, companies are have the cost of the gasoline that was refined uh, based on that higher oil price from a few days ago. So it just might take some time to uh, get to there. Well, it's Monday, Andy, so I just like to focus on the bright spots as we begin our week. So let's let's yes. we'll do that. Here's the simply money point. You know, the labor market is still strong, so the Fed will likely have to remain aggressive, and of course, the markets will respond to that. There will be some volatility. Understand though, if you are a long-term invest- investor, it's kind of another blip on the radar. 
Coming up, do you have a true understanding of the financial risks you might face later in life? And are your current money decisions kind of accounting for those risks? It's a big topic, and we're going to unpack it next. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Andy Schaefer. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast. It's the best of Simply Money. You'll find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, we're going to help you avoid some key mistakes on your road to retirement. Your older self will thank us very much. You know, Andy, you and I are both from here. We're big fans of this area. And I love because now it's like every time a new list comes out about something positive about us to live in or the real estate market or whatever it is, Cincinnati's usually doing pretty well. And today we have yet another example of that. Yeah, researchers from a Seattle-based real estate brokerage firm uh, called Redfin analyzed data from 98 cities to rank them on their chances of being uh, having a market downturn. And Cincinnati was billed as one of the most resilient markets, ranking number six on the list of places with the lowest chance of downturn. And that was tying Boston. And, and Amy, I I understand it because I love living in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot to do. I think Cincinnati's come a long way over the last 15 years. Um, I live near downtown. I love to enjoy Washington Park, um, Finley Market, uh, the new soccer venue. You start to see a lot more international workers that are coming to the city. And I think um, there's a lot of positivity in our city. And I think that's going to be here for a while. Yeah. Well, and you look about the fact that just over the past couple of years, the real estate market has just been on this crazy meteoric like craziness and uh you know you wonder are we just gonna bottom out here and, and i love to see that you know cincinnati would be at the low you know among the lowest risk for that because things are so stable here and so good and we are growing uh keep it up cincinnati <laughs> You know, as we talk about risk a lot on the show, Andy, when we're talking about is, you know, how much risk can you handle being exposed to the market, right? That's a lot of what we talk about. But there's actually a lot of risks that come later on in life when you get to retirement. But if you're not planning for them now, uh, things can get kind of ugly. There's a lot of things that I think people forget to consider, especially yeah. as you age um, in retirement, you're going to face many risks. Um, the, I think the the first one and the most the one that scares most retirees are you or are you going to outlive your money yep. and um, you know with the you know the longevity of health these days um, you know you see people living into their well into their 90s i have many clients who um, you know have parents that are in their late 90s and you yeah. see that more often now i think some other things to continue are investment losses um, you know obviously the market's volatile we recognize that what we're going through right now um, as far as the market is concerned, you might have un unexpected health expenses. Um, and one I think a lot of people don't think about is maybe some unforeseen needs by family members. You know, um, I've had some situations where um, I have a client and their sibling might not have prepared well for retirement and they need to take on that burden. Um, and the other possibility is maybe even some retirement benefit cuts. We don't know um, what legislation is going to look like down the road. So I think those are a lot of things to consider. Yeah. So, so how do you even begin here? Right. Well, the regular market risks, you know, hopefully you're working with someone that you trust and you've taken kind of a risk assessment and you figured out, OK, what is the most amount of risk that I can take on? Right. And continue to grow this money that I've invested at the same time, be able to sleep at night. Right. Once you've got that figured out, it's so interesting to me how people bet against themselves. Like I'll hear people all the time saying, oh, my parents died in their early 70s, right. so I'm not going to do you really want to count? on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talked to a man several years ago who 
works out for two hours every day. His parents died, but they were also both morbidly obese. He's in great shape. He eats well. And, and to think that he's making financial decisions, planning against himself, it just doesn't make sense. You know, and, and you're right. Every survey that I've ever seen about people in retirement when it comes to money, the number one thing that keeps you up at night at that point is being worried about outliving your money. So the best way to not have that worry is to plan for it. And I think what goes hand in hand with that is planning for healthcare, which is a huge expense. And if you're in your 40s or 50s and you feel good, it's really difficult to say, oh, but I'm going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars when I get into retirement. Yet that's, I think, the, the most recent number I saw from Fidelity is like $380,000 for couples retiring right now that they'll need to have to plan for out-of-pocket health care expenses. And that doesn't even include long-term care costs, right? No, so, great point. So, you know, I was, I was out to lunch with my cousin Emily a, a week or so ago, and you know, we were just talking about aging family members and, um, you know, and how to prepare. And I have some client, I have a, a particular client where um, her husband just passed away and uh, their, ki- their kids have already moved her into an assisted living care facility. Well, at this point, the kids are trying to um, have her mo- their mother uh, disclaim some of her inheritance from her husband so that they can get to Medicaid eligibility. The problem mm. is, is just what we we're going back to talking about before is, you know, they've planned all of their life and saved enough money to where the you know, Medicaid might not be a function of, of her future. Um, and you just don't know, you know, how long you're going to live or if you're going to need long-term care during that period of time and how that's going to impact your investment savings. So, you know, my advice in that, that arena is, um, you know, Prepare for the, prepare for the worst, and you can always pass that money on to your kids later in life. Um, but that's significant. To, uh, that's a significant risk for anybody in retirement. Well, and I think you make a great point. I mean, I think that long term care is something that so many people just don't forget about, or you overlook, or you think I'm not going to need it. But statistics show that one out of two people will probably need some kind of uh, extra care later in life. So not preparing for it, and especially while you're well, right? Look into long term care policy. I know. Uh, um, my grandpa, you know, years ago, super, super healthy, but at 86, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and he had to go into a skilled care facility. He and my grandma were super frugal. They had saved very, very well. They are German. They are <laughs> through yeah, through, right? Same. Yeah, they are savers to their core. Yet my grandpa, you know, tens of thousands of dollars going out the window almost every month. And all of a sudden, you know, they were kind of at the end of that. They hadn't planned for it. My dad, as a result of seeing that, he, I think he was in his 50s when he actually bought a long-term care policy, um, just preparing for, hey, uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm set up as well as I possibly can be and that you are taking care of Amy, you know, as well as you can be um, later in life. And these are just all things we have to think through. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you need to understand is, you know, some of these, some of the things that you perceive that might not be an issue um, can be an issue. And there are studies out there where a lot of investors don't believe that there's going to be a problem, whether it's market volatility or risk or longevity. And in reality, it is very significant. Yeah. I think educating yourself, and if, if you're listening to the show right now, you're already someone who's probably more into this than others. But, you know, you mentioned legislative risk. Well, we are, what, 12, 13 years away from the Social Security Trust Fund running out. At that point, you can expect about 75% of your promised benefit. That's a huge hit. You know, that's crazy that you just said about 12 or 13 years. Yes. That just dawned on me, you know, because yes. we, we always talk about 2034, 2035. 
and all of a sudden it's 2022 and almost 2023 and we've we've been working together for six seven yeah. eight years and now all of a sudden it's on the horizon so it's Plan possible it. that there could be some reductions in social security benefits um you know and you want to make sure and you know you and i are both in our mid-40s so we definitely have to plan for that Here's the Simply Money point. Preparing for risk you could face later in life should be baked into any meaningful plan that you have for your money. Coming up next, how to combat our financial surveillance system. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Your data, right? Every time you pick up a device, you sign up for something, more information is going out there about you. And oftentimes you have no idea who's getting it, how they're using it. Joining us tonight is our tech expert, Dave Hatter with Intrust IT. Dave, we've talked about this subject many times, but I don't think any of us truly understand all the ways this information is being used and also how it can be affecting us in a negative way. Yeah, Amy, thanks for having me on as always. And, you know, I talk about this a lot. You and I have discussed it before because I think it's so important and people don't understand it. And they say, Dave, you know, I don't have anything to hide. I'm boring. I don't care about privacy and that sort of thing. And I think it's to a large extent because people don't understand how this data can be and is in some cases used against them. So I found this article. I'm going to encourage your listeners to go find it. It's from Money Magazine, you know, a reputable magazine that's been around a long time. And the, the title is, An Opaque Web of Credit Reports is Tracking Everything You Do. Well, that so doesn't you get sound scary it, at all, does it? Yeah, not a bit. And when you get into it, they give, you know, a fairly concrete example of how this kind of thing can come back to bite you. But they also, I think, do a really good job at a high level without getting too technical and quoting. They quote some experts that I think provide some insight here about our, quote, financial surveillance, unquote, system, as they call it. And they're pointing out things that, you know, you have companies out there like Axiom. I think we've talked about them before. This is a giant data broker, one of hundreds, if not thousands, that basically make money off your data. They're buying your data from people like Google and Facebook and others, and they're combining all of this into a giant data set, which, of course, then they can turn around and sell to others. Or for that matter, they could get hacked. And well, and Dave, though, to they, your point, I think many people assume like, okay, well, um, my information is being sold to marketers and they're using that in order to sell their product or, or they're, maybe they're trying to target me better to sell me something. But what I hear you saying is, no, sometimes that information is used to paint this entire picture of us that companies can use to determine if they're going to do business with us or make decisions about us. Is that right? That is exactly right, and that's the real concern in my mind. You know, I, honestly, you can make a strong case, in my opinion, that if companies are using your data to micro-target you with ads about stuff you might actually want to buy, that's good for you. Saves yeah. you time, gets you in front of things you might actually be interested in. So I don't think that don't, freaks a lot of people out. I think you're exactly yeah, I, right. I don't really have a problem with that, okay? Yeah. And that's part of the trade-off you're making when you're using all these so-called free sites. Uh, because, you know, you're you are the product, not the customer. But the flip side of that is whether a site's free or not, everything is digital now. There's more and more data about us out there, some of which we can't control, unfortunately. These data brokers are buying this. And then there are companies out there who then buy this data because they claim they have some great algorithm that can analyze that data and do things like say, well, you know, we looked at Amy's data. She's wanting to rent from you, but she probably wouldn't be a good renter because of X, Y, or Z. Or, you know, we'd, we'd really like to hire Joe. 
But uh, we checked out Joe's data and we ran it through our system that determines who would be a good employee. And you know what? Yeah, Joe doesn't make the cut. So, so this is nothing that you would put on your own right rental application or application for a job or resume. It's this information that's you have no idea how long it's been out there, if it's correct or not. Yet people are using it to make decisions about you. Exactly. Here's a direct quote from this article. There's a good chance your information is being logged, cross-referenced, bought, sold, and scored among a sprawling network of consumer data brokers, and that data can be used against you when it comes time to apply for a loan, land a job, rent a place to live, and even innocuous things like sign up for a new phone plan or bank account. So this isn't crazy old doomsday Dave making this stuff up. This is a known thing. People are not getting jobs. People are unable to rent apartments. And, you know, maybe the information they're using is legit. Maybe their algorithms are correct and you really wouldn't be a good renter. But unlike your credit score, which you can at least go see and dispute if you can say, well, you know, this is wrong. There's no way to see this stuff. And for most people, except for thanks to people like you that let me talk about this crazy stuff, people don't even understand this is a thing. They don't understand it. The reason why they might not have gotten a call back for a job that seemed like it was a good fit is because that employer is using one of these so-called systems to determine if you're going to be a good employee or not, perhaps based on data that's totally bogus or maybe data you wish you wouldn't have put out there but never realized how it might come back to bite you at some future point. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We're joined by our tech expert, Dave Hatter, with Intrust IT with this interesting warning. Uh, and I think we all need to take this one incredibly seriously. The data that's out there may not just be used to give you ads about products that you're interested, but it actually might be being used um, for companies to decide if they're going to hire you, if they're going to give you a favorable rate for something to make decisions about doing business. And, And Dave, I think to your point, the really strange thing about this is you don't even know they're using these systems and you have no idea what information they're even seeing. Well, you've definitely hit the nail right on the head. That's the real concern in my mind is You have no idea what data they have, how they got it, is it accurate, is the algorithm they're using to analyze that data, does it have some kind of inherent bias in it, and that's a whole separate topic that's a huge problem that many technology experts and ethical experts have warned about. And, you know, so some company says, I've got a tool you can use, Mr. Employer or Mr. Landlord or or Miss Loan Officer or whatever. And they use these tools based on all this data they're buying from these uh, data brokers, and they're making decisions about you, and you have no way to know. And and really, until you even understand this is a thing, no way to do anything about it because you're you're coming with the attitude of, well, I don't have anything to hide. I'll just put it all out there. What have I got to worry about? Okay, so you know, now I'm that gonna... we know it is a thing, what can we do about it? Well, that's really tricky. And I would say the first thing is once you have awareness of this, um, you know, unfortunately, there is a ton of these data brokers out there. Uh, The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has a list, and you can get it from that money article, of the 60 largest consumer reporting companies out there. But, you know, it's estimated there are hundreds, if not thousands. Um, You can go out and try to figure out what information is available about you out there. In some cases, you can dispute it. But just knowing this is a thing and then... As a result of knowing it's a thing, try to get in front of, well, okay, there's some unflattering stuff about me out there. If I'm going to apply for a job or a loan or whatever, maybe I want to try to get in front of that. Um, And to then start to knowingly limit your digital footprint into the future. You know, turn off the location services on your phone. Stop using questionable sites. Uh, 
stop, uh, use privacy-friendly browsers and search engines and things like that so that there's less information available about you. And, you know, I, I had this argument with my wife the other night. She's looking up medical information for a friend because she's trying to be helpful. I'm like, you realize when you do that, the mm. way you're doing it, that is going to be associated with you and our family as a result of that. And when we can't get health insurance somewhere down the road, wow. our premiums spike by like 400% because you're looking up brain cancer, you know, wow. I, and she's like, oh, that's not a thing. I'm like, okay, let me come read this article with me and let me help you understand why it is a thing and why you need to at least understand these things before you do these things, because there are ways to search privately. There are ways to circumvent these systems, but if you're not even aware it's a thing, you're putting stuff out there, you know, you just happen to go to who, who of your listeners or me or you or Joe hasn't just gone down a rabbit hole on the internet. Oh, yeah, you see a video leads to another yeah. video. Yeah. You search for something leads to something else. And next thing you know, you're off into some crazy thing. Yeah. Guess what? That's all out there somewhere. It's all out there somewhere. Could people be making decisions about you based off some crazy thing that you just happened to stumble into? Yes, they could. And it's not just me saying this. It's all kinds of people warning about this, which is why you should care about what's out there and what you're doing. So you mentioned, um, Dave, when you were just talking that there are ways to search privately without that information going out there. What are some of the best ways to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. First off, ditch everything from Google. Stop using Gmail. Stop using Google search engine. Stop using anything from Google. They're the, you know, if not the least, the second least privacy-friendly company in the world because they and Facebook make all their money off you. Use a privacy-friendly browser. Safari on Apple, Firefox, Brave. Um, use a privacy-friendly search engine. Things like DuckDuckGo or, or others out there. Um, you can do things like use a virtual private network, which encrypts the data that you're sending, it obscures your location. You know, when you couple something like Firefox, especially in strict mode, where it's really locked down, uh, and with something like Proton for email, which is what I use, it's all end-to-end -end encryption, uh, and something like DuckDuckGo or one of the other privacy-friendly search engines out there, and you throw a VPN on top of it, well, you're certainly not invisible. You are making it extremely difficult to be tracked from one site to another. So anything that you're not explicitly putting in there is going to be very, very difficult to detect. And even that, then if you really want to take it to the next level, you can use something like the Tor browser, where everything is encrypted and it's bounced all around. So there, the Tails operating system. You know, if you, you do go, have options, right? And I think do. that's the important thing to know, to take control of this, do your research, understand this information is being used, uh, and you can control what's out there. Great insights, as always, from Dave Hatter, our tech expert from Interest IT. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Andy Schaefer. Straight ahead, some new proposals that might actually help you when an airline messes with your flight. We'll tell you what you need to know. There are some financial mistakes, unfortunately, that we see people making time and time again. Often they happen at certain stages of your life, but sometimes there are just universal no-nos. If you are 20, if you are 60, if you are 95, don't do these things. Um, and one of them is just waiting to invest. I, Annie, we were actually having a conversation with our kids yesterday, the two oldest, 17 and 16. They both have jobs now. And we said, hey, 
if you guys put money into an IRA right now, a custodial IRA will match what you put in. So Jason pulls out his phone and he's doing these calculations trying to say $1,000 now is $54,000 <laughs> when you retire. And there, there is like, whoa, yes, sign me up for that. Yet it's funny. I think we, we know these things, but when we get that first paycheck coming in, many don't actually invest any of it. I can't believe your kids are getting that old now, but oh, I, I will know. say- I'm way too young for this. <laughs> they, they, I think in the moment they were probably excited, but it's one thing to be excited about it and another thing to give up part of your paycheck. Yes. So right. I think this is a good one for parents to hear. You know, you shouldn't wait until you're making more money to start putting money away. You know, compounding interest- um, and tax-deferred savings are, are significant for you to meet your retirement needs. And the more money you sock away now, the better that you're going to have as far as choices later in retirement. And I know that's easier said than done. I know, you know, from a personal standpoint, when I got out of college, you know, you, and you have your first job. And I think, uh, you know, I was my first job, I was an options trader at Charles Schwab, and I think I was making 23500 or something like that. Well, you know, that doesn't go a long way. And so yeah. it's harder to start to save. I think the most important thing is, even if it's 15 bucks a month or $50 a month, at least get in good habits. Yes. Well, and this is interesting. A study of more than 2,000 people found that 90% of them did not start saving for retirement in those first five years of working. And I think, yeah, you know, you're not making much. Many people have student loans. But yes, any little bit can make a huge difference. And then not investing soon enough and then not investing enough. And I know people who are our age and, you know, life is expensive. And if you've got kids and you're planning vacations and they've got travel sports and things like that, I hear excuses from people all the time. Um, hey, yeah, I'm going to start like kicking up my retirement savings next year when this right when this thing happens, when I get that next bonus at work or that next promotion. There's always an excuse, but you just got to dive in. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, is a lot of times, you know, you might be taking less risk than what you need to take, particularly when you're younger. You know, Amy and I, you, you and I talk yep. about that. You know, we're both heavily invested in stocks. We take yep. a lot of risk. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned many times that I'm 100% stocks. I'm 46 years old. What do I care if we go through a recession? You know, I don't, I'm not going to retire. We'll go another... through many more recessions before you and I get to retirement age. Bingo. And so yeah. I don't really care about those risks. But I think what you have to understand is the more aggressive you are, the higher the inclined plane is going to be on your ultimate um, um, investment goals. You know, you might see a lot more volatility in the meantime, but in the long run, that's going to be better for you if you are a little bit younger. Yeah. It's what makes sense for you, right? I know lots of people who are my age and still like not the risk tolerance, you know, and, and that's completely fine. It is, you know, how well can you save and invest and take on that risk at the same time? How well can you sleep at night? Another thing I see people oh, really falling into, especially lately, getting lured by fads. And I'm thinking, cryptocurrency. I'm thinking of Dogecoin. I'm thinking of, right, there's so many things. And especially right now where there's volatility in the stock market, people are looking around, what else can we do? Where else can we invest? And I've just, I, I read about it and I talk to people and I'm not saying you can't invest in cryptocurrency, but I am saying that maybe your 401k shouldn't be. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? If it's money on the sidelines that you have that you can lose and you're not going to lose sleep over it, okay. If it's your kid's college fund, not okay. Yeah, I think what people don't realize is there's over over 14,000 different types of cryptocurrencies. So, you know, what what's to say that one's going to be the successful one that the survives? One. Yeah, and, I, and I've had friends that have bought in cryptocurrency at 50,000, and now it's in its low 20s. You know, so when you think that that is an area of safety, it's not. 
Um, but like you say, Amy, if you do have some money on the side and you want to speculate, whether it's crypto or meme stocks um, or anything like that, just be prepared to lose whatever you put in there and don't use your retirement money for those types of fads. Yeah, it's just not regulated yet, right? Give it a little more time. Let's see how this all plays out. A couple of other things I would say that you have to be prepared for. First of all, the right kinds of insurance. That's like the foundation for financial planning. You don't have that in place. Something happens to you, right? You don't have the, the right kind of life insurance. That could really go bad for your family. Also, not having an emergency fund. This is like the cornerstone. You talk about foundations. This is everything that you've saved won't matter if you're pulling money out of your 401k when your car breaks down. These are the things that you need to make sure you've got taken care of. Here's the Simply Money point. There are a lot of wrong turns that you can take on your road to retirement, but those who've got a solid plan usually end up taking the right ones. Coming up next, the proposals being considered that might just improve your flying experience. Yes, please. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Andy Schaefer. Andy, you and I both love to travel. Um, and I got to tell you, I used to love everything about traveling. But in recent years, I don't know, post-pandemic, it's so crazy that I, I often find myself thinking, like, just to get through the airline process of it, right? I'm hoping there's no cancellations, no changes, anything like that. So it's interesting to hear um, that there might be some help on the way for travelers. We'll see. You know, I... You know, I'm getting to the point, and I don't know if I'm getting old and grumpy, but if it's if it's if it's a trip that's in less than ten hours, sometimes I, drive. Choose, I just choose to drive yeah. because by the time you get to the airport two hours early, you know, fight all those lines, get off, you need to get you know a rental car and all that. It's going to be six or seven hours anyway, right? I was just on Facebook last week, saw a friend of mine was going to Hilton Head. They said it would have been a ten hour drive, but they had just spent twenty hours in the airport. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, to well, your point. Yeah, but we'll see. Um, you know there. There are some things that um, you know Congress is doing that is is hoping is designed to help the consumer. So, uh, for the next ninety days, the FAA would like to hear your thoughts on the width and heights of seats, the pitch of the seats, the space between rows, and this is all being considered because of FlyersRights.org won congressional support for minimum standards in two thousand and eighteen. So, personally, I would like to see the width and the length of the seats a little bit better. But how about you? All the things. Yeah. I, I'm not. A, I'm not a large individual, and I find myself like I can't breathe. I'm like right. a sardine in these seats, and I'm like, is it is it in my brain, or are these seats getting smaller? Or am I getting a lot bigger? They are actually shrinking, and as a result, you know, of course, they want to get make as much money as they can, put as many people on these airplanes as they possibly can. But come on, people, I think this is crazy. They think that they you should be able to get off of a plane for an emergency in 90 seconds, and I'm thinking, people. No. Don't no plane in 90 minutes when we <laughs> yeah. land. Like, how the heck are we supposed to do that? Right. So they're really saying, taking a look at this, saying, well, maybe if we have more space between the seats, larger seats, people can get in and out of them more quickly. Um, I say yes to all of those things. Um, and then another proposal, flight cancellations. If you've had a flight canceled this summer, and we know it's all over the place, there's kind of a new proposal out there to figure out what compensation you should get for that inconvenience. Airlines are all over the place. It's just kind of a mess. Yeah, I have a, a, a trip with my wife, Kendra. We are going to a wedding in Montana, and I am praying nice. that there are no delays during that period of time because, like you said, you know, especially for a wedding, if we miss uh, you know, our flight and have to go the next day, that's going to impact you know, our experience at this wedding in Montana. 
Yeah. Well, and another proposal that's out there, too, if you got a COVID voucher, uh, I guess originally they had expiration dates. Now they will not. So if you're sick and you can't fly, um, you will have, you know, five years, 10 years, however long that you need. Uh, and again, this is all in conversation right now. If you've got strong feelings about these things, go to the FAA's website. You've got 90 days to weigh in. And I mean, I think we can all say that there have been just not the best travel experiences lately. Definitely pack your patience, but now at least you've got a voice. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.